I'm not sure how you're doing as you've come here to this gathering this morning. You may be doing really well, or you might not be doing so well. Either way, it doesn't matter. We are all in equal need of God's grace and His help as we look to His Word. So we're going to go to Him in prayer. He is utterly faithful. He always answers the prayers we pray to Him. And so let's go to Him now. Our Father, we come to You and our prayer is very simple. That You would show us Yourself from within Your Word. That You would show us ourselves. And that You would show us our Savior. We pray that You would work in us and give us eyes to see these things and hearts that would love and receive Your truth. We pray for that in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let me ask you an important question. Why is it that you need the church? It's true that we are commanded in Scripture. We are told not to neglect assembling together. Very good. But why do you need the church? To say, well, I'm told that I need it is true. But is that all we can say? Keep that question in your mind. We'll come back to it. Another comment by way of introduction, I should tell you that I am making some assumptions about you and about us, frankly. I am assuming that as you sit here this morning in Christ Jesus, united to Him by faith, that you want to grow in Christ. I assume that. I assume that you want to be more godly. I assume that you want to be mature. I assume that you want to grow in wisdom. But how is it that that will happen? How? Hold on to that question as well. Let's open our Bibles as we seek to answer these very important questions for the Christian life. Why do we need the church? And how in the world will we grow in the faith? Let's look to God's Word. In particular, we will be looking today to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you haven't already done so, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking today specifically at verses 7 through 16 of Ephesians 4. I will be reading a few more verses than that, but it's been a few weeks for me and for you since we've been in the letter to the Ephesians. And so I want to do a very quick just flyover of where we have been and the things that the Apostle Paul has written up to this point so that we can better orient ourselves in the letter. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Not a lot of them or most of them, but all of them. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God has loved us since before the ages began. We're told that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ. We're told that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The Apostle tells us that all of this, God's loving us and choosing us and adopting us and the redemption that is ours through the blood of Christ is all according to God's eternal plan that He has set forth. We are told in chapter 1 that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and that we have been guaranteed an eternal inheritance. Paul tells us that we, the saints, are God's inheritance, that we have been called to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, and that God delights in us. And we are told that Christ has been given to us as head over all things. He's been given to the church, and His power toward us is great. 
In chapter 2, we're told that we were dead before. We were dead in our trespasses and sins before we knew Christ. We were following the course of this world and we were enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. We have been united to Christ by faith. God has done this so that he might display the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ forever. We have been saved, Paul says, by grace, not merit. We've been saved through faith, not our works. We are saved on account of Christ, not ourselves. And the whole of salvation is a gift. It can't be earned. It's given freely. This is so no man may boast before the Lord. And at the same time, as our salvation is given to us apart from anything that we could ever do, we are told that we've been created in Christ for good works that God has already prepared for us to walk in. We are told that those of us who were once far off, who were cut off and alienated from God, we were without hope and without God in the world, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been told that Christ has reconciled us to one another and that he has reconciled all of us to God and God is now building us, his church, into a dwelling place where he will live. The church is all about Jesus and it is founded on him. And it is astonishing that we are being built into a dwelling place for God through the work of Christ's Spirit in us. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, Paul tells us that his ministry, as he understands it, is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles and to make plain the mystery of Christ that was hidden for ages in God. Paul says that God is displaying his wisdom and glory in the heavens through the church. He could have done it any way that he wanted, but he does it through his church. God is accomplishing in us and through us all of His eternal purposes in Christ, and so we should not lose heart. Then Paul tells us that the greatest thing, by praying this for us, he implies that the greatest thing that could ever happen for us is that we would be strengthened in our inner man by His Spirit, by God's Spirit, so that we might comprehend the love of Jesus for us. And that in comprehending the love of Christ, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And then finally, the last time we were in Ephesians, in verses 1-6 to of chapter 4, Paul says now, in light of all of that grand soaring truth, in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of that rock-solid security that you have in Christ, in light of God's wonderful purposes that He has and that He is accomplishing, live with one another in humility and gentleness. Christ has done everything that you need. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go and love your brothers. That's the message. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another in love. And pursue unity in the church because we all have Christ in common. That was Ephesians 4, 1-6. And so now, let's look back to God's Word. I'm going to begin in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 and read all the way through verse 16. This is the Word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. We thank God for his word and the promises that he makes to us in his word and the things that he tells us about his plans for us in the church. And so today my plan is to consider the text in three points and then I want to offer two reflections on the text. Three points in the text and then two reflections out of the text. Point number one. In verses seven to 10, we will see that Christ has given gifts to each of us. Point one, Christ has given gifts to each of us. So Paul has been talking in verses three to six very pointedly about the unity that we have in Christ in the church. And coming out of that emphasis on unity, Paul makes very clear that at the same time, grace has been given to each one of us individually according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are all one body. We are unified in Christ. We confess and believe the one faith. We have the same hope. We all call God Father, and we each are given particular grace, particular gifts by Christ. And then in verse 8, we see that Paul is going to ground this assertion by looking to the Psalms, looking to Psalm 68 in particular. He cites Psalm 68, 18 in Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul is going to explain his use of Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is about God's triumphant march from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and then His enthronement there. And Paul understands all of that. This march from Sinai in the wilderness to Zion in Jerusalem and God's enthronement there. Paul understands the point of all of that is to prefigure and point to Jesus. He sees Christ in Psalm 68 and applies it to the church here in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I'm very tempted to talk for a while about how the apostles read and understood the Old Testament. I'm very tempted to talk about how the Apostle Paul read and understood the Psalms in a way that is very Christ-centered, 
The Psalms are about Jesus in a way that is redemptive historical. Like it's not just prayers that are written by God's people, but there is a point to them. And the main point of them is Christ and what He would come and accomplish, what He would come and do. Suffice it to say that Paul would get bad marks in many seminary classes for his handling of Psalm 68. He would be corrected because he's not giving enough attention to the original context. But he sees through that to the main point of the psalm, that this prefigures and points to Christ. Saints, read your Bible that way. Read your Bible that way. It will encourage you in the faith. Back to the text now. Regarding the psalm itself, Paul reasons from Psalm 68 that the one who ascended, the Lord, is also the one who had descended to earth. And this same one is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul sees in Psalm 68 the incarnation, the ascension, and the preeminence of Jesus. He sees also in Psalm 68 that it is Christ who gives gifts to men upon his ascension. He clearly has Pentecost in view. As Christ ascended to the right hand of his Father, the Holy Spirit was given to all of God's people and Christ gave gifts to the church. So that's all point one, that Jesus gives gifts to us. This has always been the plan of the Lord. Point two, from verses 11 to 14, is that Christ has given gifts to the church. So point one is Christ gives gifts to each of us. Point two, Christ has given gifts to the church in verses 11 to 14. In verse 11, the particular gifts that Paul lists that Christ has given to the church are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, without getting mired in the weeds, we would, along with many saints through the history of the church, understand that apostles, prophets, and evangelists had a particular purpose during a particular era of redemptive history. We would also understand in looking at this text that that word rendered shepherds could also be rendered pastors. And the word that is rendered teachers is quite literally shepherd teachers. So all of this, let's bring it down, like on the ground, out of the sky, on the ground, right? All of this means that we are on the right track when we understand shepherds and teachers, as we see it in the text, to describe men who are referred to elsewhere in the New Testament as pastors or elders. So what's the point of all that? The point of all that is that Christ has given gifts to the church in the form of men who will teach, lead, and watch over her. Now, in verses 12 and 13, as we put our eyes there, we see the purpose of these gifts that Christ gives to the body. The purpose of these gifts that Christ gives is to equip the saints for ministry. The purpose of these gifts is to build up the body of Christ. Until, Paul says in verse 13, all the saints, we all, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto maturity. And that's quite a bit. Why has God given pastors and teachers gifts to the church? To equip the saints for ministry, to build up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto mature manhood in Christ Jesus. 
clearly. Pastors and elders and teachers in the church are merely instruments in the hands of an almighty God for any of this to happen. It doesn't happen because of us. Our sufficiency is not found in ourselves. Our sufficiency is in the Lord always. This language in particular, though, of until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God so that we will be mature. It's kind of a big deal. The job, in a primary sense, of pastors and teachers in the church is to teach the faith. To teach the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. It is the job of pastors to herald the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that He has done. It is the job of pastors to help us go more deeply into Christ and the gospel, which then results in our growth in the faith. So we preach Christ. And we preach law and gospel. We aim to rightly divide the Word of God so that it may be profitable for the saints. In saying that we preach law, what do I mean by that? I mean that we preach the law of God unaltered, not diluted, in all of its holiness, in all of its requirements. We make it very clear that God has one standard and it's called perfection. For you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You may think that you are keeping the law because you are keeping it in some external way. You may think that you're keeping the law because you haven't killed someone, for example. But I say unto you, if you're angry toward your brother, you've broken the law. You may think you are keeping the law because you have not slept with somebody who isn't your spouse. But I'm telling you that if you've lusted after someone who's not your spouse, you've broken the law. We are told in Scripture that anyone who does not keep all of the things written in God's law will be cursed. Deuteronomy 27. We are told that those who keep these commands will live by them. Leviticus 18.5. We are told that God is an impartial judge who always rewards good and always punishes evil, but the problem is that nobody's good. We preach the law this way. We make it clear that God does not grade on a curve. And that because He is holy and we are not, we are ruined before Him. But we don't just preach law. We offer Christ. We offer Christ to weary people who have been crushed by the law, who see that they have no shot. We then proclaim Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did. That God the Son, who's always existed, took on flesh 2,000 years ago and became Jesus of Nazareth. But what did He do? He lived a perfect life for 33 years. Never sinning, not in His thoughts, not in His desires, not in His deeds. He lived that perfect life so that He could offer Himself as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. So that a sinless one could die. He didn't have to pay for his own sins so he could pay for the sins of all those he represented. He lived that perfect life in perfect fulfillment of God's law also so that he could give that righteousness to all those who would ever trust in him. Sin wiped away and paid for. 
righteousness accomplished and fulfilled, counted to wretched sinners like us by faith. That's gospel. So to rightly preach the faith, we make very clear that God requires all kinds of things if we are ever going to be reconciled to Him. And Jesus has accomplished every single one of them. And we, simply by faith in Christ, have peace with God today, tomorrow, and forever. And then, in Christ Jesus, safe and secure, reconciled to God by faith alone, we then can look to God's law together as the perfect guide for our living. But it no longer condemns us. Its teeth have been removed. It guides us in our lives, tells us what's good for us, and tells us what's bad for us. And we trust that as God's Spirit works in us, we are conformed more and more to what God has told us is good for us in His Word. This is how the Christian life works. Ours is the faith that says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The first use of the law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. Ours is the faith that says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not by works, but by faith. Our debt paid, our sins washed away, and the very righteousness of God Himself given to you and me. All of this, friends, as we study this and look to this and rejoice in this and pray this and sing this week after week after week after week, results in our growth. It results in our transformation. Sometimes I think we are fearful that we may not grow in the faith, that we might not be sanctified. We're aware of our own sin. We're aware of just how messy and not great our lives look often. We are grieved by it. But the promise of God's gospel is not just that we are reconciled to God on the front end and then we need to get to work and that our sanctification is ultimately on us. The message of God's gospel is that we will be sanctified, period, book it, because we've been united to Christ and because God's Spirit dwells in us. Now that doesn't produce apathy. It doesn't produce lawless living. It produces humble, grateful people who look to God and say, thank you for what you've done for me. I'm astonished by your grace toward me, your mercy to me in Christ. And now God, give me grace that I may live unto you. Give me grace that I may love my brothers, that I may be humble and patient and kind and gentle. Sometimes people are concerned that if we preach that law and gospel like I outlined for us a few minutes ago, that maybe people won't change. People will just be content to remain as they are. To which we say, well, that would be true. If salvation was a natural process, that would be true. 
perhaps. Perhaps that would be true if God's Spirit hadn't taken up residence within us. Perhaps that would be true if we have not been united to Christ by faith, but we have. As it stands, God's Spirit lives in us. We have been united to God's Son. And we have been told for certain that we will be conformed into His image. That we have been perfected for all time, even as we are being sanctified. And that the one who has called us is faithful and he will surely do it. So pastors are called to teach all of that stuff so that we might grow in the faith. Put your eyes back on verse 14. Where does all of this lead? This equipping the saints and teaching, building the body up unto maturity. Where does all this lead? It leads to the us growing to a place where we will no longer be immature. We will no longer be like children, tossed around, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every strange teaching. Carried around and carried about by human cunning and by craftiness, by deceit. It's very clear that the job of pastors and the gifts that Christ gives to the church is very much oriented around teaching sound doctrine so that we might not be led astray. So that we might not go after strange teaching. So that we will not be deceived easily because we know the truth. In knowing the truth, we recognize the counterfeit. We are grounded in sound doctrine. We are wise. We are discerning. We can separate truth and error. We're solid and stable. That's where this goes. That's what this ends up in. Point one, Christ has given gifts to each of us. Point two, Christ has given gifts to the church. And now point three from verses 15 to 16, we're going to consider Christ's design for the church. Christ's design for the church. Just a brief word of clarification. In verses 12 to 14, Paul had in view the particular gifts of Christ, pastors and teachers and the like from verse 11. But now in verses 15 to 16, it's very clear that he has the entire church in view. All the saints. All the saints who have been equipped with their various gifts are in Paul's mind in verses 15 and 16. And just a brief public service announcement before we even look to these verses. Your gifts that you have been given, and you all have them, we all have them, your gifts are not for you. They're not for you. They are for us. They are for your brothers and sisters. They are for the building up of the body of Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen? All right now, verses 15 and 16. These verses tell us pointedly how Christ intends His church to function. As we speak the truth in love, we are grown up in every way into our head. We are grown up into Christ. As we are equipped by pastors and sound teaching and all these things, we together, in speaking the truth to each other in love, build one another up unto maturity. We are conformed into the image of Christ. And just a brief note here, the truth, like anything else in a fallen world, can be weaponized. can It has often been. One of the greatest sources of confusion that exists with respect to the gospel and God's church is this reality. The world has been burned by Christians who have weaponized the truth. Christians in the church have been burned by other Christians who weaponize the truth and use it as a blunt instrument to bludgeon people with. 
We don't have to talk about that for very long. I trust you have experienced some of what I'm saying. When we don't speak God's truth in love, we have hijacked it for our own purposes. And it no longer serves the purpose God has for it. Yes, speak the truth. And speak it in a way that is loving toward one another. And when we do that, we grow more deeply into Christ. Put your eyes now on verse 16 though. Look at those two words at the very beginning of the verse. From whom? So when we speak the truth in love, we together are grown up into Christ, into maturity in Jesus. From whom? That's Christ. So, significant observation. All growth, and by all growth, I mean all growth that happens in the church comes from Christ. From His Spirit at work in the church. You nor I produce any of it. It comes from Christ. We are at best conduits and instruments. How does the body make the body grow? Only in Christ. Only because of Him. Only from Him. Only through Him. But all of this, put your eyes back on the verse. All of this, though, under Christ is inherently corporate in nature, like overtly and obscenely so. Look at the words. The words of from whom the whole body, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, we grow together. By the power of Christ's Spirit, and it takes all of us. You see that slogan out in the culture right now about various things. It takes all of us. It's a good banner for the church. It takes all of us if we're going to grow. Not one joint, not one part is insignificant. These verses, verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4, they ought to be underlined or circled or highlighted, whatever you do in your Bible. They should be that. And if you're one of those people who's like, man, I would never defile Holy Scripture by writing in it, then make a magnet or something and put it on your refrigerator. These verses are worthy of your consideration on a regular basis. That we together make the body grow. All because of Christ's work in us. So now let's consider a couple of reflections from the text in the remainder of our time together. Reflection number one. It will be shorter than number two. Reflection number one, sound doctrine is important. Reflection one, sound doctrine is important. So pastors and teachers are given to the church for the equipping and building up of the body. We've talked about that. It's their job to teach the scriptures, to teach the faith. We've talked about that. To herald the unsearchable riches of Christ. To make plain the mystery hidden for ages in God. And as you hear those words, as I hear those words, my reaction is God help me do that. And I hope your reaction is, I should pray for my pastors, because that is a big deal, that responsibility. And in doing all of this, it is the job of pastors and teachers in the church to ground the saints in sound doctrine for their edification. So now, the building up of the church, as we already considered, comes from Jesus alone. And so, he is the one who prescribes how it will go and how it should be done. And he has determined, in his perfect wisdom, to grow the church this way. It's not man's idea. It's his idea. And it's very important that as we consider doctrine and we consider the health of a church, that we all together understand that sound doctrine provides safety and stability in a local body. I know as 
the pastors of CBC, we talk regularly about how the culture of the church is driven directly by the doctrine of the church. The culture of the church is driven directly by the teaching. So what I mean by that is we have been striving for years to teach God's word faithfully, and the theology and the confession of faith that we have has produced, by God's grace, an imperfect but real culture where Christ is preeminent, where sin is taken seriously, and yet at the same time, it is safe to confess sin and fight it together. That is driven by theology. There are many churches that attempt to build cultures similar, but it doesn't last very long because that culture is not driven by doctrine directly. It's driven by a personality. It's driven by a leader. It's driven by a group of people. There's no stability in that. There's no safety in that. Because as soon as the pastor changes, the culture changes. But a sound theology that has been instilled in a congregation, it lasts. A sound theology that has been instilled in an eldership lasts. It grows with the church. And it provides stability and safety because it's not built on one person or a few people. We confess it together. Sound doctrine really matters. A lot of times I think people have made the statement that doctrine divides and so we shouldn't concern ourselves with it. We shouldn't be orthodoxy police and all these kinds of things, to which I agree with that. We ought not be so off-center that we only concern ourselves with, well, how precise is your statement? But without sound doctrine, brothers and sisters, it will not go well. We have to start there. So sound doctrine is important. That's just a brief reflection for you. I know we agree. Reflection two, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Reflection number two, growth in the faith is a community project. Let me say that again. Growth in the faith is a community project. Think about the witness of the New Testament, in particular the epistles, the letters of the apostles. All of the references to the Word of God or the Scriptures in the New Testament epistles are corporate in nature. Why do I say that? Well, in part, nobody had their own Bible for 1,600 years. Like, if you were going to be ministered to by God's Word, it would happen with other Christians. It would happen more pointedly in an assembly like this, where the Word of God would be read and the Word of God would be taught, where Christ would be proclaimed. Think about the sacraments as the New Testament epistles Reveal them. We do not baptize ourselves. We are baptized into Christ by an officer of the church. Communion. That language is significant of the common union that we have in Christ. It's a together thing. It's we come to the table to feed on Christ by faith. We have been united to Christ by faith and we have been united to one another. And this common table and cup we share is significant of that. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Singing is a corporate exercise. Not saying that you can't sing hymns in the shower, go for it, but it's a corporate exercise where we are edified as we sing. Most of the references to prayer in the New Testament epistles have an obvious corporate nature to them. And think about the exhortations to assemble together that are contained in the New Testament. Every week, just to illustrate the reality and the significance of the assembly, we pray a prayer of invocation. Right After that scriptural call to worship is read, whoever's leading the service will 
pray that God would be with us to empower everything that we do. But we should, brothers and sisters, in spite of our sin and need, we should expect that God is going to do something very special here every Sunday. And we can and should expect that in a way that we could never expect it when we are by ourselves. Because God has promised to meet us when we are together and to minister to us. And then there's all the one another passages in the New Testament. They're replete with them. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Be gentle toward one another. Kind to each other. Restore those who are caught in sin. Forgive one another. Be humble toward your brothers and sisters. Exercise self-control. Confess sin one to another. Bear one another's burdens and sorrows. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Practice hospitality. Give to those in need. Don't show partiality. Love one another in all things, including the exercise of the freedoms that you have in Christ. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is that the Christian life is inherently corporate. Your faith is personal. It is never private. The Christian life is one that is lived in community. We will grow as members of the body, period. We won't grow by ourselves, and we were never meant to. There is no way to practice Christianity alone, at least as it is revealed in the New Testament. It cannot be done. And yes, God gives extraordinary grace in unusual circumstances. Before somebody like, is a, like, well, what about the person who's in prison for their faith and they can't go to church? Okay, God gives extraordinary grace in those circumstances. We ought not use very rare exceptions to prove the rule. Christianity cannot be practiced alone, at least as it is revealed in the New Testament. So, even if you're not feeling it, even if your week has been insane, keep showing up here or at another church that preaches this same gospel. And I promise you on the basis of Scripture that you continuing to show up at a church where the gospel is preached and the saints are genuinely seeking to love each other will bear more fruit in your life over the course of years and decades than you could ever comprehend. And it doesn't matter how you feel on any given Sunday. It doesn't matter how you felt during a service. It doesn't matter if you leave thinking, I'm not sure I got anything out of that. We trust God because He is faithful and He will minister to us and our growth is the point. So even when you came and you thought, you know, I don't know if I was that effective. I'm not sure how much I got out of church today. Did you have a conversation with anybody? Because you, you never know how the Lord may use you to encourage another brother or sister in the faith, even when you feel like you got nothing out of church. Our growth is the point. Your individual growth, my individual growth, is not the point. As John Calvin has remarked, that man is mistaken who desires his own separate growth. Saints, we need each other. We say this a lot. We need Christ for sure. And we need each other. We have all been given grace. We have each been given gifts. But none of us have been given those things to the extent that we don't need our brothers and we don't need our sisters. 
We need each other for encouragement. We need each other for strengthening. We need each other for exhortation, for sharpening. We need each other for admonishment and correction. We need each other so that we can be reminded of what's true. We need each other for compassion and sympathy, for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness, for restoration. We need each other for help in times of need. And we all have a role to play. We all do ministry. That sounds crazy in an era where the ministry has been so professionalized that we think that the only ministry that happens is like up here on the stage or something. We all have different roles for sure. They don't all look the same, and every person and every role matters. As you're thinking about this, just a few maybe thoughts for you. As you're thinking about, okay, I'm called to do ministry, and every person does ministry. What does that look like? How should I think about it? First thought. Any ministry you do is not for you. Any ministry you do is not for you. That may be clear, but it's for the body. It's for your brothers and sisters. And so a lot of times I think we, do, we seek to do ministry so that we feel fulfilled. We ought not be driven by that kind of thinking. We ought to be driven by concern for the body of Christ that others may be built up. Second thought. Much of the ministry that occurs does not appear to be extraordinary. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's simple. It's mundane even. It might not seem like a lot to you, but it is used of God. Third thought. If you're not sure what role you might play, what gifts you might have, just start doing something. Start doing something. And it will become clear over time where you fit and where you're gifted and where you are most helpful to the saints. So as we just kind of land the plane here, I want to circle back to the questions that I asked at the beginning. In particular, the one question about why is it that we need the church? And I'm going to frame my answer this way. And you just think along with me. If someone were to ask my children years from now when they're leaving our home, why is it that you need the church? Certainly, I would want them to be able to say that we're told in Scripture that we need the church. I would want them to be able to say that we are told, maybe even cite Hebrews 10.25, we ought not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. But I hope that they would have a lot more to say than that. I hope they would say, I need the church because it's where I am given Christ. I need the church because it's where I know Christ tangibly in this world. I hope that they would say, I need the church because it's how I'm sustained in the faith. I hope they would say that I need the church because it's how I grow. I won't grow without it. I hope they say, I need the church because it's how I'm going to make it to heaven because I won't on my own. I hope they say the church and corporate worship is not a burden, it's a lifeline. I hope they say that in the church, I need the church because I know that it is in the church where I cling to other Christians who cling to me as we all cling to Christ. Saints, that's true, you know. 
We use that language a lot, but it is true that we cling to each other as we all cling to Christ, and Christ has us. And so, because Christ has us, we don't need to worry, and we don't need to be afraid. You, as you sit there by yourself, I know you're in an assembly, and I know I'm talking about community, but as you sit there, maybe distracted and burdened by how terrible your life is going or by how significant your sin is or whatever it may be or the doubts that are just all over the place and you feel alone. You may very well have all kinds of questions that nag you and burden you. You may think, you know, I'm kind of a mess. Am I, am I really going to grow in the faith? Am I really going to be sanctified? Yes, we will grow and be sanctified because of Christ. You may be thinking, I tend to struggle a lot. At the end of it all, am I really going to make it? Am I going to be lost? No, we will not be lost because of Christ. What about my sin? I don't like it, but I find myself doing it. I understand that I've been declared righteous by God in Christ, but will I ever be pure and blameless? Ever? Yes, we will be presented pure and blameless alongside our Savior King at the end of all things. You may be thinking, my faith is not strong. My faith is weak. It falters a lot. You're telling me that one day I will see Jesus as He is and my faith will be turned to sight? Yes, we will. See Christ as He is. Our faith will be turned to sight and we will be with Christ forever. He who calls us is faithful and He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would continue to teach us according to Your Word, that You would show us very pointedly how much we need Christ and that you would remind us of how much we need each other. And we pray that you, even now, as we're going to come to your table to receive Christ in the bread and the cup, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. That as we feel our need, we would be strengthened as we come together to Christ. Encourage us in your Son. Encourage us in our fellowship. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.